Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Joel Salatin, farmer, libertarian, and author of many books, including The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs. We talk about farming, what motivates farmers, and why they're doing so badly economically. Joel also tells us about the negative externalities of farming today, the regulations that farmers have to put up with, and what he hopes for the future. Joel is a hero of mine because he really understands farming at a really deep level. I got turned on to his book, The Marvelous Pigness of Pigs, from another Bitcoiner who knew about Joel's work. And I got to say, that book really changed my perspective on food production um, as a Christian and understanding what it really means to uh, you know, take care of the earth and things like that. He has an understanding of the food production system in America today that very few people do. It's much like how we understand the monetary uh, system. Uh, he to, he is to farming what we are to the monetary system. Anyway, I really hope you enjoy this interview. Hopefully you get a much different perspective on food after uh, you learn from him what it's really like. Joel Salatin, how's everything going? Well, it's good. It's good. We're toward the end of our season and just excited about uh, about getting a little break for the winter. <laughs> well, you're in kind of a unique situation given what's going on in the world in that you're on a farm and you don't have to worry so much about what everyone else is worrying about. How's that been? Oh, it's been fabulous. Fabulous. You know, from a day-to-day standpoint, my life is no different than it was, you know, a year ago, kind of day-to-day. And I'm so thankful I don't have to, you know, go into town every day. You know, I have taken a couple flights and done some things and, and fought the, you know, fought the whole mask thing <laughs> and all that. But in general, you know, we got food, we got firewood, we've got got our pantry, we got our little close community here. And so we're up and running. Mm. That's awesome. So I wanted to talk to you because you're obviously very passionate about regenerative farming. And and if you haven't read Joel's books, I mean, you got to read one because it gave me such a different perspective on what food was. So can you tell us a little bit for my audience what regenerative farming is and how it differs from, say, commercial farming? Yeah, well, there are plenty of code words for regenerative farming. I mean, you know, ecological farming, sustainable farming any number of things, but essentially we've got two ways to handle the land and to produce food. And one really honors nature's patterns and the other one dishonors nature's patterns. And so one, you know, one grows soil, one erodes soil, one increases hydration, the other increases desertification and reduces the water cycle. One simplifies everything and one, whatever, diversifies things, you know, appreciates complexity. One is all about just, you know, pile it higher and sell it cheaper, regardless of quality. The other one is all about nutrient density, quality, and those sorts of things. And so, you know, you can just basically, you know, make up, you know, make two lists, if you will. One believes that nature is fundamentally well, and if something is not well, we probably messed it up. The other believes that nature is fundamentally unwell and we have to manipulate it and change it around so that it's productive and well. I mean, these are diametrically opposed paradigms. And, you know, that's the difference. 
Mm. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me is that a lot of uh, the situation that we find ourselves in with respect to food production in this country is largely driven by sort of like the economics and the monetary things that go on. So can you sort of tell us what are the economics of regenerative sustainable farm versus the economics of a commercial farm? Yeah, well, I would say that the, the major difference is that one is honest economics and one is dishonest economics. And, and by, by that, what I mean is that there have been numerous studies done to quantify the unexpressed costs of you know conventional industrial food. Unexpressed costs are things like environmental damages, fish kills, destruction of wildlife, erosion of soil, depletion of aquifers, of water both in quantity and quality. You know, the fact that, you know, 50% of all, you know, foodborne illnesses are from superbugs created by antibiotic and pesticide herbicide resistance creating uh, superbugs. You know, MRSA and C. diff in hospitals are a direct result of, you know, antibiotic use in industrial agriculture. So you have all these kind of externalized costs that are not actually put in the economic equation. So at our farm, we're very upfront with people and say, we have the cheapest food in the world. Now, it doesn't carry the cheapest price tag. The price tag carries everything in it. Our food won't give you a case of uh, superbug diarrhea. It won't, you know, it won't erode the soil. It won't eliminate the pollinators. Birds will still sing for your grandchildren. You know, <laughs> these are critical ecologically nesting things. And so problem is that our economic system does not have a way to measure these costs. In fact, we're so crazy that let's, you know, we measure the economic success of a civilization, right, by measuring gross domestic product, GDP. And what's amazing is that if I go out here, let's say I go out here and pollute the river in front of my house, I toss in a bunch of, you know, chemicals in that river and pollute it. Amazingly, the cost of cleanup is an asset in GDP because it stimulates economic activity. And so how can you possibly have a long-term functional civilization that has no way of actually putting in the negative part of the balance sheet, subtracting these massive costs? You know, if we have a bunch of people that are in prison the cost of building a prison should be a negative, you know, on our GDP, but it's a positive. We're pouring concrete, we're buying steel, we're employing people. And juvenile delinquency, um, we got to build some more juvenile delinquent homes, you know. Oh, that's positive GDP. And so, you know, how can a civilization that can't capture what we would all consider to be economic and cultural negatives on society, how can it possibly thrive? when we put those in the positive asset column and not the liability column, it boggles the imagination. Mm. That's very interesting that you frame it that way, that one is sort of honest economics and the other is dishonest economics. And the dishonest economics has some form of broken window fallacy built into it, where they think that anything that stimulates jobs is good, even if it's something bad like juvenile detention homes or pollution or, or things like that. I wanted to know, like, just specifically, why is it that 
farmers, for example, like, you know, if you're a chicken farmer or something like that, they like, what are the economics like for them? Because from what I understand, they make very little money, but they work like crazy. And the product that they're putting out isn't exactly that great. So like, what causes them to do that? How does that work? (laughs) Well, I think it's a great question. And thank you for asking it. I think a couple things. One is, that farming is not just a business. It's if you're a farmer, it's very much a lifestyle. It's very much, you know, a captain of my own destiny, you know, whatever ruler of my little estate. And so there, there's a certain whatever Americana nostalgia around a piece of land and, you know, and stewardship of that land. So, you know, it's amazing what people will do because they love it and not because it returns money. And I mean, that's a good thing for the human condition. We'd have very little, you know, philanthropy and mission-oriented activities if money were the only factor determining if something is worth doing. That's one thing. But the the second thing is that farmers have been, what, uh, brainwashed? uh, Farmers are universally subject to the propaganda that, especially here in the United States and America, that we feed the world. And if I don't produce this stuff, children in, you know, in Bangladesh are going to starve to death. And so there's this big kind of guilt burden that every farmer carries on his back that drives them, you know, to this, I'm feeding the world. I'm, you know, boy, yeah, have you seen the bumper stickers? No farmers, no food that uh, I have to feed the world. And if I didn't produce this, everybody would starve to death. And so there's this, it's not only a guilt trip, but it's also almost a righteous uh, I'm righteous. I'm righteous because I'm feeding the world. So it's a bit of a martyr. There's a bit of a martyr complex here that, that I'm responsible for everybody's health. And, you know, that's makes me a very important person. And especially in a vocation that's been so marginalized, like farming has in the last 50, 60 years, you know, emotionally, farmers grasp at anything to make them feel important. I mean, there are now almost twice as many people in prison in the United States as there are farmers. And so farmers don't even, they took farming off the census notation. They, they, they actually take a census of prisoners, but not farmers anymore. That's how few of us there are. And so farmers are desperate to feel affirmed, to feel validated. And so this idea, I'm feeding the world, doesn't matter if I make any money, I'm really important and everybody's depending on me. Everybody wants to feel needed. Everybody wants to feel important. And so it, the cachet of the, the USDA and the, the messaging, the, the mystique of it, you know, has moved farmers to a place of whatever, a compulsion rather than actual economic competency. That's so interesting. That totally reminds me of like my friends that went for PhDs or something like that. And I mean, I'm sure you know that PhDs make very little money and oftentimes they're stuck in academia doing like postdocs and stuff for very little money. And I'm always like, why are you doing this? You could go make so much more money in industry or whatever. And they're, they always answer with, well, I'm not doing this for the money. And then I'm like, what are you doing it for then? And usually the answer is some form of advancing human knowledge or something like that. But it seems like farmers have a similar sort of complex where they feel like they're doing something that's good for the world and that it's sort of like a moral imperative almost. Yes. Yes. I would agree with you. And, you know, moral imperatives are good. I mean, we would have very few 
pastors probably if we didn't have a moral imperative or very few, you know, that would donate time to big brothers and big sisters or you know, name your, your give blood, whatever, you know, get name your charity, you know, universal human attribute of wanting to help, feeling needed. That's a good thing. But certainly a lot of crazy things have happened in the name of, you know, noble cause. Yeah. The crazy thing to me about a lot of these farmers is that you point out, at least in your books, I think, is that so many of these farmers are in just enormous amounts of debt. And they're having to take these giant loans in order to build facilities or create new machines or, you know, like go more into the way that the corporate world wants them to go in. Um, Like, why are they like, are they forced into it? Are they like sort of economically desperate? Why aren't they trying more of the stuff that you're doing that's more sustainable and profitable, frankly? Yeah, well, I think the main reason or the short answer for that is simply paradigm. We all know paradigms are subconscious. It's our subconscious view of the world. That That's kind of how we view things. And we don't even know we have a paradigm generally. If somebody says, you know, what's your paradigm? You have to stop and Think about it. It's not like we post our paradigm on the refrigerator door, you know. And so the paradigm under which farmers are operating are, number one, I have to feed the world. Number two, another false paradigm is that production equals profit, that if I produce more bushels of corn, I'm more profitable. And nothing could be further from the truth, especially in the biological world, when you force things to their, when you push the pedal clear down to the floorboard, things don't run as efficiently. There's a sweet spot. There's a biological sweet spot, a kind of a balancing window, if you will. And nature always moves toward this kind of homeostasis, this equilibrium place. When there's, you know, when there's too many wildebeests, the tigers increase. And when there's too many tigers, the wildebeest decrease and it gets harder to get food. And so we see this balancing thing. And, and so I think farmers are running under a false idea that, that they can push every, that they can pedal to the metal without any uh, consequences. But another one is simply, as I've told people, you realize that if people widely adopted what we do on our farm, it would completely invert the power, position, prestige, and profits of the entire farm food sector. And that's a pretty big ship to turn around. And you got to realize that I think the statistic is something like 85% of all decisions that farmers make are based on the advice of a salesman. I mean, there is a huge, whatever, network of fraternity that, you know, that profits off of farmers buying things. And so there is a tendency, there's a pride. My chicken house is bigger than yours. You know, my tractor is bigger than yours. I've got a bigger truck than yours. There's a certain pride in that. And so that plays a part as well. Yeah, it reminds me of like church sizes where, you know, sort of pastors brag to each other that they're, they have a bigger congregation than the other guy or something like that. But like you said, it's all about the quality that matters and not necessarily the, you know, like just sort of getting more units out. So how does the market sort of price these things differently? Because obviously, you know, a chicken that's grown in like horrible conditions, it's just not going to, it shouldn't fetch as high a price as, you know, a chicken that's been pasture raised and so on. Like the market seems to have made that choice, but the fact that these really cheap chickens exist seems to have 
distorted the market somewhat. Like, what's going on? Why is that continue to be the case? Like, is there that much demand for it? What do you think is happening? Oh, well, you have to understand that the average American believes in a cheap food policy. You know, we say we have the phrase, you get what you pay for. We use it for clothing. We use it for automobiles. We use it for, you know, concerts. We use it for everything except food. And food is supposed to be able to, you know, Prince Charles says that a culture is defined by uh, religion, architecture, and food. And when I travel around the world, when I used to before COVID, (laughs) uh, you can go to any country in the world. There's a definite, there's a Mexican cuisine. There's a Spanish cuisine. There's an English cuisine, a Danish cuisine. And when you ask anybody, well, what's American cuisine? The universal answer is McDonald's. Okay. So (laughs) around the world, I can tell you around the world, and I would say in our own culture, you ask people, you know, What's America's contribution to the global food scene? The answer is McDonald's. And so there is a completely pervasive, you know, culinary kind of subconscious in our culture that food, rather than being something to celebrate and and becoming the centerpiece of a home, of a life, of an experience, food is actually a pit stop in the journey of life that we just, I don't want to stop and eat, but I guess I have to because I have to eat something. And so I'll just stop and grab something because, you know, I've got soccer games to go to, work to do, you know, computers to build. And so we, in America, food is a footnote. Other cultures, food is an exclamation point. And that's a bit, so, so what I'm getting at is farmers have always produced what people want, always. Farmers don't come to the culture and say, okay, culture, here's what you're going to eat because this is what we want to produce. That's never happened. It's the culture that comes to the farmers and says, you know, here's what we like, here's what we want, and farmers figure out how to do it. Obviously, it, you know, it's, it's subtle and it has, you know, historical roots, but that's the way it works. And so the farmers are simply responding to a cheap food policy that thrives on a pricing scheme that doesn't account for these externalized costs. I mean, and so the day consumers realize that, for example, you know, my first protective wall for my immune system is to eat nutrient-dense, non-pathogenic food, the day the consumer makes that decision is the day that guess what? They go visit the farmer's market. They, you know, they get online and look for, you know, pasture-based livestock and that sort of thing. That's when that happens. So the fact that cheap chickens exist is not because, not necessarily because farmers want to grow them. It's because that's what the market has demanded. And the market doesn't want to pay for those things either. And when we say, when we say, look, when you buy our chicken, you know, you're not, you're buying a, you're buying way, a way more dense nutrition. The fat profile is different. The riboflavin's different. You know, you're buying your vitamin pills, your nutrition, you know, you get all this benefit plus, you know, you're increasing wildlife, you're increasing water, you're increasing soil, you're increasing local food resiliency, you're germinating young farmers, all these benefits that you buy into, that can't be done 
with a cheap food policy. It, it has to be a comprehensive, completely comprehensive look at everything that surrounds the food production. Hmm. Yeah, what you said was very interesting that uh, food has essentially been dropped down in our, our culture in terms of importance. And, you know, it's reflected, I guess, in the fast food that we're all kind of consuming and, you know, deprioritizing of food and putting it down. And that's essentially how you get cheap food. And you mentioned how real good food has a lot of positive externalities like regenerating the soil and making the environment better. Whereas cheap food has all of these negative externalities like pollution and, you know, degrading the soil and things like that. So I want to ask you, what do you think is the cause, like what caused this sort of like cultural shift to, I guess, putting food into a lower tier or like, I guess, de-emphasizing food in favor of something else? Or what's the root cause of that? What's happened here? Well, I think, look, we're a very young culture. We're a young culture. And we have not gone, and our young culture, I mean, if we go way back to, you know, pioneer colonial early settler days, one of the big differences here versus, for example, Europe, was that initially we didn't know if we were going to get food tomorrow. And in fact, I was talking with a writer that, that writes about culinary things around the world, and he was saying that in Europe, the reason that in Europe people eat a lot less per sitting or per meal is because of royalty. In Europe, with royalty, and I'm going back now, you know, a couple hundred years, but with royalty, it was a sign of affluence to not eat, to, to not gorge yourself at a meal because it was a status symbol to be able to look around and say, well, I know where my next meal is coming from. And so I don't need to eat lavishly because I know where my next meal is coming from. Here in America, so there was a status symbol in eating gently. In America, it was, man, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. And so I'd better eat all I can right now because it might be a couple of days till I get a, another meal. There was, I mean, the Little House, even as recent as the Little House on the Prairie books. Remember when the cornmeal barrel, you know, ran out and Almanzo had to go through a, and Pa went through this blizzard, you know, to try to get something for the family to eat. You know, that was just, Roughly turn of the you know nineteen hundred stuff, and so in America we have this tradition of scarcity and a and we don't have royalty, and so in Europe whenever when you get done with a meal in Europe the first question is did you like it? In America, you get up from the meal and the hostess asks did you get enough? <laughs> Those are two extremely different views toward food. One is, you know, was it taste good? Did you enjoy it? The other is, are you full? Are you satiated? And those two phrases still today, you know, carry that legacy foundation of a culture. And so I think that we thought we were doing much more important things in life, much more important things in the world than eating. We were making steamboats. We were making the internet. We, I mean, Goodness, you know the story of uh, Bill Gates, you know, doing Microsoft. He said he, you know, he lived in a in a garage on beans and Roma noodles for two years, developing Microsoft. I mean, that's a perfect example of 
hey, you know, I, I'm doing great things. I don't have time to, you know, think about food. And so we have simply not thought about food. It has not been part of our cultural mystique to, to mm. put an emphasis on it. Mm. Yeah, I do see that like Americans do like to eat like stray cats that don't know where the next meal is coming from. <laughs> so yeah, I totally understand that part. Let's go a little bit deeper here because there is sort of like centralized food production that sort of sets the food policy for the rest of the country, isn't there? Like there's a lot of big corporations that set this. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Of course, the vulnerability of that came to the fore during the, you know, the height of the initial COVID situation back in April and May. And the supermarket shelves emptied out and these big, these large processors were having COVID through their facilities and were having to close down. And everybody saw reports of, you know, euthanizing millions of pigs and euthanizing millions of chickens. The food was out there on the landscape, but there was no pathway. There was no resilient pathway to get from farm to plate as these centralized systems started breaking down. Imagine, just imagine, if you will, if rather than having 150, 4,000 employee mega processing facilities around the U.S., if instead our population were served with, you know, 100,000 small neighborhood canneries, abattoirs, and processing facilities around the country. Think of the difference in the resilience. And so what we're seeing for the first time, at least in my lifetime, are big players actually asking questions, should we put resiliency in the same objective category or goal category, if you will, as efficiency? That discussion has never happened until COVID. You know, and when John Tyson looked into the camera and said, our food system is broken, look, you and I know that what he was wanting is he was wanting a bailout from Congress. But for him, you know, for him to say that, I mean, here's a family that has devoted their lifetime to efficiencies and to centralization and empire building. And for him to look in the camera and say, you know, our food system is broken. That's a profound acknowledgement of something wrong in the system. And this long chain between farm and plate and the, the concentration of it, it came to the light in the empty store shelves. And so, you know, like on our farm, goodness, as people couldn't buy it in the supermarket, we got flooded. I mean, our whole six-month inventory was gone in like three weeks. And as people were looking for food, they were desperate. I and mean, we had calls from people who would never have thought about pasture-based livestock, local food, or even authentic food. And I mean, they told us that they came in the sales building. I would have never walked in here, you know, two weeks ago and had a guy in. It was funny. It was a Saturday he was in and, and he said, I was here two weeks ago. I said, really? I said, well, what happened? We have a farm store here. He said, yeah, you know, I came out because there wasn't any food in the supermarket. So I came out here and I got yours. And he said, my goodness, I had no idea there was that much difference. I'll never go back to the supermarket. And he said, he said, we, we bought stuff for a month and we ate it all in two weeks. That's my kind of customer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you know, it opened up a whole new world to him. And so, you know, it was, it was very cool to my joke during that time was my goodness, if I had known that the, the pandemic would be such a great marketing tool for a farm like ours, 
I'd have ordered it up about three, you know, three years ago. <laughs> it was a fantastic marketing tool. So it's been an exciting year. And the, the question is, you know, how much will stick? How much will hold? And goodness, if, if even 20% of the market changes we saw during the height of the thing, if even 20% of them hold, it's going to be a major shakeup in the industry. I mean, it's, it's already shook up, obviously, the, uh, the bricks and mortar stores and the online sales, that sort of thing. And fortunately, we now have enough distribution logistics technology to allow farms like us to access directly, to directly access consumers, to bypass brick and mortar stores, our own whatever delivery truck boundaries. We can now exceed that. And there's, I can tell you in the talking to the, you know, farmers that I do, and I'm editor of Stockman Grass Farmer. So I have my pulse on a lot of, you know, just very, very small branded products like us. And Everybody is reporting just a bang up year and much of it, I think, can be sustained because we do have access to, you know, cheap distribution logistics. We're shipping now nationwide. You get a little insulated box and as the price of maintaining physical infrastructure, bricks and mortar, sidewalks, bathrooms, cash registers, lighting, you know, insurance against falls, as all of that increases and the distribution logistics decreases, you know, we're getting to a much more competitive place. Mm. That's interesting that you put it as sort of moving from efficient to more resilient and like going from centralized to decentralized is essentially making the system more resilient, even if it costs a little bit more. And I think that's a really good trade. And I think uh, like for any sort of emergency, that's when you're most thankful for that sort of thing. But one thing I wanted to touch on is your point about having a relationship with customers, you know, sort of on a personal basis when you're a small farm. Right now, when you buy food, it's sort of you have no idea where that's been. You have zero clue, like how many processing plants that it's been through, how many hands have touched it, what sort of things have happened. And that in turn increases the level of regulation that's needed because, you know, how can you be have any certainty of food quality if you have that? Whereas if you have a relationship directly with the farm, you, you and say you visited the farm and so on, you kind of have a good idea and you could kind of take away a lot of these sort of costs that are inherent in centralized systems. Well, yes, and for sure, I you know just for for sake of discussion, I call this the uberization, the uberization of food. You know, if somebody had told you, let's just say, you know, twenty five years ago, that did you know that in about five to ten years, millions of people around the country, around the world, are going to jump into cars with drivers they've never met who don't even have a chauffeur's license whose automobiles haven't even been inspected for, you know, for roadworthiness, who have never passed a drive, who have never, you know, taken a chauffeur's driver's test. And people are going to voluntarily jump in the car with these people and ask them to take them places they don't even know where it is. And it's all going to be fantastic with no government agency involved, no oversight, no nothing. (laughs) You just said, well, you're nuts. I mean, who would have guessed 25 years ago that Airbnb worldwide would create 
more accommodation rooms than Marriott, Sheraton, and Hilton combined without ever driving a nail or cutting a piece of wood. And the reason that these work is because it's the power of the internet to democratize access and accountability. And so the democratization of the accountability and access conversation in the market has allowed a completely circumventive inversion of the pathways to retail. Whether that retail is a is a car drive, you know, a hotel room, or in what we're talking about, a T-bone steak or a you know a, a chicken or a you know a piece of fruit. And so, just like the what happened historically was that the butcher, baker, and candlestick maker who were embedded in a community and the subject of positive and negative gossip and the accountability that comes with everybody knowing, you know, what goes in the front door and go, comes out the back door. During the Industrial Revolution, the butcher, baker, candlestick maker got extremely large, put up razor wire fences and guard towers, and became extremely opaque and began to cheat. And that cheating made our society demand an industrial scale watchdog, which is known as, you know, Food Safety Inspection Service, you know, name your regulatory bureaucracy. The idea was well, we need a government agency to protect us from the opaqueness of this industrial thing. Well, now with the internet, which has returned the village gossiper, <laughs> and, <laughs> and essentially it has, because of the, uh, the feedback loop, it has reopened the butcher, baker, and candlestick maker to the village accountability conversation. Suddenly now we have a new transparent opportunity for personally chosen provenance. Mm. And that's a really, really cool thing, which means that a person who wants to invest any amount of time or interest in vetting provenance can now do so personally. You can go visit a farm, and I certainly encourage that. You can surf the web. You can you know, talk to friends, you can about, you know, did you order from this? What do you think? You know? And so there's now, there are now numerous ways of vetting provenance in our food supply that we literally didn't have even 30 or 40 years ago. And so I think that, that this is, that we have the opportunity here for a golden age of locally branded, personally vetted, knowledge-based, transparent-oriented provenance that we just haven't had before. And it's very exciting. Yeah. And this is totally reflecting what's happened with Bitcoin and versus, you know, like the current monetary system with banks and things like that and all the regulatory things that you talked about. And, you know, at least as Bitcoiners, we're very used to verifying, not trusting. And that's exactly what you just talked about with respect to the food supply. There are a lot of people that are cheating when you have giant centralized systems where there's no transparency whatsoever and you have to rely on government watchdogs or or food safety inspectors or something like that to do the verifying on your behalf. And of course, they're bribed and all sorts of things like that. 
instead, if you have personal relationships and you have a level of accountability that comes from more communication like we have on the internet, it changes the equation significantly. And that's something that it seems like is happening in, in food, with money, maybe other things. How do you think that changes sort of our mentality? And what was that? What sort of societal level changes do you see coming as a result of this sort of pattern that we're seeing? Well, in the big scheme of things, what it does is it atomizes, it fragments the current, you know, mega players, call them monopolies, but current mega players, as long, look, as long as you have freedom, as, as long as you have liberty at the grassroots level to innovate and to actually come to the marketplace table, as long as that liberty is protected, eventually the big players become bureaucratic, they become static, they become stagnant. And so innovators are always going to yap at their heels. They're going to they're innovate something that questions and starts to eat away at the share of the, you know, of the big players. I mean, look what's happened just since the election. People are so fed up with the, you know, with Facebook and the obvious, you know, prejudicial, you know, views of the big social media giants. But what is it? Is it uh, Parler? It's called. It's a, it's a little upstart, mm-hmm. you know, social media outfit called Parler. They've been getting something like two million new subscribers a day mm-hmm. since the election. And what Parler is is a completely uncensored. There's no censorship. I mean, mm-hmm. no censorship. And so the anti-vaxxers and the pro-Trumpers, <laughs> the anti-maskers and the the pandemicers, you know, can all get on there and have a voice. And so this is what happens when things get out of hand. But the only way, the only way that you can protect disruption, disruption of innovation at the grassroots level is in a state of liberty. If you go to, you know, top-down tyranny, then you don't have a way for the disruptors to be able to come to the marketplace table. And so changes that I can imagine that are coming, I'll tell you this, last year, For the first time, uh, a friend and I convened the first national rogue food conference, for example, out in Cincinnati and sold out, had a wonderful time, several hundred people. And the whole mantra of the conference was circumvention, not compliance. And Mm. what happens when you have this harassing regulatory kind of tyrannical environment in an economic sector, what you have then is a is an incentive when the incentive is more to circumvent than it is to comply you know you're in a you know, kind of a tipping point that's kind of where we are in the food system right now you know we've got all these latent artisans and craftspeople local brands ready to join the, the food system but we're kept out of the market with you know food safety modernization act with food safety the Federal Food Safety Inspection Service, all sort, you know, FDA, all sorts of labeling and food food regulations that aren't about safety. They aren't about hygiene and cleanliness. They're all about you know filling out paperwork, checking boxes, you know, things that don't mean anything. What they do, or they require infrastructure. I mean, back years ago, I remember when we were when the government tried to shut us down, and I asked them, I said, well. 
let's let's take an empirical swab sample. If our chickens are cleaner than what's in the store, who cares if we gut the chicken in a kitchen sink? Don't all we really care about is is clean. Now this is after they told us we had to have you know six changing lockers and a bathroom and all. This. We're thirty feet away from our house. You know we don't even have any employees, and it's that kind of requirement that precludes so many embryonic entrepreneurs from getting to the marketplace. And I think that this Uberization and the Internet of Things, the the whole democratization, the Internet, what that has brought to the fore, we've seen it now atomize the hospitality industry. We've watched it atomize the chauffeur, the limousine industry, transportation industry. And with cryptocurrency, we're seeing it starting to atomize the financial industry. And I would suggest that that atomization will continue into the food industry as well. Hmm. Yeah, what you said makes total sense. And there is this tension between entrepreneurs and sort of government regulation in large part because they're trying to protect certain businesses that are um, donating to them and so on. But there is is this opposing force that you put so eloquently, circum circumvention, not compliance. And that's the pattern that we're seeing in so many of these really heavily regulated industries. I can't think of two more heavily regulated industries than food and money. Those are like just all sorts of ways in which that happens. Jimmy, I thought that was true too, until I met a guy that was trying to do local fuel. Uh, He was doing a biodiesel. (laughs) And and he said, you think food's bad? He said, trust me, people are way more concerned about what goes in their gas tank than what goes in their stomach. So... So <laughs> that, that is uh, kind of crazy. There's that much more regulation around fuel than yeah. oh wow. <laughs> so yeah. he said, add energy to your, you know, to your uh, box of regulated tricks. There. <laughs> yeah, I will bet you anything that it's because of the money involved, and well, of uh, probably <laughs> of course it is. It's it's always about the money. I mean, think about it. I can go out here on a seventy degree day, and as a hunter, and shoot a deer and drag it a mile through the sticks and rocks and squirrel dung, and then put it prominently on the hood of my blazer and parade it around town to show everybody my trophy, bring it home and hang it up in a tree in the backyard with flies all over it, and then cut it up you know, sometime in the next week in the cool, and feed it to my children and give it to all my neighbor's kids, have a block party, invite everybody over for dinner. And this is all this is considered being a wonderful American, you know? But if I take one pig or one chicken on an appropriate temperature day, carefully, you know, eviscerated in the in the backyard and sell one pound of it to a neighbor who voluntarily, as a consenting adult, wants to exercise freedom of choice and write a private contract to purchase that from me, suddenly I'm a criminal. You know, I can give it away. I can give it away all day. And that's perfectly great. That's uh, fine. But as soon as I take a penny for it, now I'm a criminal. Obviously, this isn't about food safety. It's about regulating what is available into the marketplace. Mm, And protecting those players that benefit from you not being able to do that. Yes, concessionizing status quo. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get your take on this because I think, I don't know, I personally think there's something to it. But there, something about the fact that there's always more money being printed, that there is inflation, tends to decrease the quality of the goods that 
come out. And this has to do with an economic phenomenon that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is sticky prices. People you know, are used to paying a certain price, they will not pay anything higher. And even if the money is inflating and the money is worth less, that causes producers to have to cut costs and that cheapens things. How much has that sort of affected the food industry in the last hundred years, say, since the Federal Reserve? Yeah, well, the the food industry has been the last of the table on this. I mean, certainly what it does is that it makes farmers want to cut corners and sell everything for cheaper and cheaper. You know, one of the best ways to explain this, if I could do my kind of 30-second soundbite, when we came, when my family came and purchased this farm in 1961, so it's almost 60 years ago, the pasture the land was worth $90. They paid $90 an acre for it. And that acre would produce half of a calf per year, which that half a calf would be worth $90. So that is a, that is a land to production ratio of one to one. Today, that pasture is worth $7,000 an acre. It still produces the half a calf because there's no more rain and no more sunshine. And that half a calf is worth $350. So that ratio is 20 to 1 land to productive capacity. So it's gone in 60 years, it's gone from a 1 to 1 to a 20 to 1 ratio land to production. And that right there shows you how food has not kept up, food prices have not kept up with the other elements of society. Instead, farmers have tended to to keep cutting corners, including a dead zone the size of Rhode Island in the Gulf of Mexico, including, you know, uh, sending two bushels of soil down the Mississippi for every bushel of corn, including increasing desertification in the Southwest and depletion of aquifer water going deeper and deeper and deeper, including, you know, superbugs, medical costs, things. So what farmers have done in the pursuit of maintaining this cheap food policy, other things have replaced it. For example, in the last 30 years, we've moved from 18% per capita expenditure on food 30 years ago to 9% today. And we moved our medical, our per capita medical costs from eight from nine percent per capita thirty years ago to eighteen percent. In other words, when a person gets their income, you know their income, thousand dollars of income, thirty years ago, one hundred eighty dollars of that went to food, and nine dollars went ninety dollars went to health care. Today, ninety dollars goes to food, and one hundred eighty dollars goes to health care, and so. There's a direct, there are relationships here so that as food, as the pressure on food to allow room for increased medical costs, increased education costs, you know, increased energy costs, labor costs, all these things, things have have risen in other sectors. Food has been the one sector that has, in real terms, has continued to drop relative to everything else. If we had the same ratios in effect today as we had in 1960, a hamburger would cost you $50. Mm. 
Wow. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a zero-sum game at play here where inflation seems to redistribute the amounts that are spent largely to our detriment. Because obviously, if you're paying $9 for food and $18 for healthcare, your quality of life isn't very good. Whereas if it's the other way, your quality of life is probably better. Nobody likes being at the doctor, but they do like eating food. And there, the other thing that I found really interesting about what you just said was this whole idea that of you know production of land to the value of land. And we know that there's been a significant amount of asset inflation as more dollars are being printed. So the land is obviously going to be worth more, but the production that you get out of the land, the actual thing that you can use it to produce has gone down in real terms because of this significant asset inflation. And if we had a store of value that was a lot better than the US dollar, it wouldn't be going so much into real estate, especially on farms and so on. And it could instead go towards you know more productive things like food. Is that an accurate assessment of what's going on here? Yes, that's certainly accurate. I don't know how much inflation, I don't know how much inflation inherently affects the ratio I'm describing. What I can say, I would tend to say, I don't want to get in a disagreement, but I would tend to say that more than inflation, probably what's driving this ratio thing that I'm talking about is more regulatory than actual monetary. Well, partly because of farm subsidies. I mean, you know, farms like me don't get subsidies. And so, so when you have manipulation, and that's part of regulation. Regulation is not only what you can't do, but it's also, you know, whatever. Subsidies and things. Sub subsidies yeah. of what we want you to do, right. And so, so it comes on both elements. And so when you give special preference to want to certain sectors in any, you know, economic jurisdiction, when you give certain elements of that special treatment, it always skews the marketplace. I can give you another, I mean, just minimum wage laws, for example, as that required labor to artificially increase, then it puts downward pressure on other parts of the economy in order to balance. And so, again, food, because what we eat today generally doesn't show up in our health for years, there's a long-term, there's a slinky aspect that allows us to think we're getting by for a long time until we aren't. <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind, of, kind of like soil erosion, you know, you can go, you can rock along, rock along. And when you say soil erosion, you, know, you think, well, you know, what's, you know, what's a tenth of an inch of soil a year? Well, when you realize that it takes nature a thousand years to build one inch of soil and we're eroding our cropland at a tenth of an inch a year, we're eroding it way faster than replenishing it. But it's not obvious in one year. So, you know, well, we rock along this year, we'll rock along next year, we'll rock along the next year. And so, so yeah, you're probably financially sharper than I am on what inflation does, but I can assure you what regulation and market manipulation does. And that definitely has a huge effect on these on these ratios, these historic ratios that I've described. Yeah, and I would include inflation as part of the regulatory framework. Ah, it's sure. uh, it's uh, fair it, enough. It, it's 
it's almost always used as a way to fund different regulations, for example, or yes. to subsidize other things like you were saying. I wanted to switch gears just a little bit because I found this part to be very interesting and sort of in line with what we've been talking all along about, you know, being more resilient. I call that maybe even anti-fragile. A large part of you know, sustainable regenerative farming is that you do end up handling animals a lot more. And you're, you know, I, I was reading about how you, you know, I guess drink water that the same water that the cows drink or something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, there an anti-fragility that you get out of that where you're not as vulnerable to outside things, especially things like what we're going through with COVID as a result of sort of your lifestyle. And that's in stark contrast to something like, you know, single crop farming or something like that, which is very vulnerable where you can have a single strain of a disease actually kill your entire crop and you have like no recourse and you're kind of ruined. It's kind of like that gradually then suddenly thing that you described where you're going along fine until disaster hits and then you're just completely screwed and you have a recourse and you're bankrupt. Whereas your system of you know, sustainable regenerative farming is much more resilient to those things. So in fact, you're able to thrive in times of COVID where you know, people come and seek your services and you have, you're doing better than ever in times of craziness. So I wanted to ask you, what are some things that we can do to become more anti-fragile in that way? What are some of these things that you do? You're obviously like handling animals and drinking water with the cows. Like, what are some practical tips that you would have for my audience in that regard? Yeah, well, if you're looking for, let me preface this by saying in general, in general, um, agriculture has viewed the world, our ecosystem, as fundamentally simple. We view it as fundamentally complex. And so, as you mentioned, the, the monocropping, the factory farming, all thrive on a single crop, a single animal, a single use. And it, it, even the, the chemical fertilizer assumes just nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. It doesn't assume, you know, boron and molybdenum and <laughs> cobalt and a bunch of other things that we know are extremely important. And so I think the foundation of this anti-fragility is all about bringing complex, reintroducing complexity into our lives. Well, we humans, we don't like complexity. <laughs> you know, we, we, we want a recipe. We want a formula, right? You know, we want a routine. And so we balk at complexity. And so when I drink out of the stock tank with the cows, it's not because I'm, I'm being uh, stupid, I don't think. It's because I am looking the the full array of complexity that my ecosystem can offer me for my microbiome. I mean, we know that our microbiome needs, it's got a trillion, literally trillions and trillions of bacteria. And in our bodies, we are making all of these relationships. There are literally a quadrillion commercial exchanges, negotiations going on in our bodies every second. I mean, it's beyond our even our thought. So uh, with that in mind, my kind of recipe for you, if you wanted to, how do you, you know, how do you, how do you build your immune system? You know, if you want a very practical guide, uh, okay, so I don't want to be anti-frat, I don't want to be fragile. I want to be anti-fragile. I don't want to sit here and worry about COVID. 
you know, I want to just go about my business and not have to worry about all this stuff. It's a kind of simple recipe. First of all, I would say don't drink any sugary drinks, you know, uh, Mountain Dew, Coke, Diet Pepper, Sprite, whatever it is, you know, quit it. Just don't drink any of that stuff. Instead, drink, you know, good water. So part of the anti-fragility is quit doing the bad and then do good. And so you're going to quit drinking all that junk, include with that junk food, you know, get away from the net, from the snack machine, the vending machines don't go down there, you know, and, and then the second one then is the positive part is eat only food that you can pronounce, eat, eat whole foods, eat less processed and certainly don't eat anything processed with, you know, with an ingredient that looks like a chemical chemistry experiment. So if you can't pronounce it, don't eat it. And that includes getting in your kitchen. You know, one of the neatest things about this whole pandemic has been the amount of uh, at-homeness of everything. And I think that's really cool. People are discovering their kitchens and their bread makers and ice cream makers and all that stuff. It's pretty cool. Backyard gardens, backyard chickens, the whole deal. So, you know, cook for yourself, do it for yourself, eat, eat whole foods. Next one is sleep for eight to eight and a half hours a night. That means you're not going to stay up and watch the late show. You're not going to stay up till the end of the Monday night football game. You're going to go to bed early. And and we all know that the, the sleep you get before midnight, every hour before midnight is worth two hours after. So, you know, get enough sleep. Push yourself to, to get eight, eight and a half hours of sleep. Uh, number four is get outside 20 minutes a day. Get out there, get out in the sun. We know vitamin D is a huge deal with COVID. Get some sun on yourself. Get outside. Number five, spend 20 minutes a day sweating. Work up. A, I don't care whether you walk fast, do push-ups, do the Peloton or dig a fence post hole, whatever it is. But, you know, do something to work up a sweat for about 20 minutes a day. As Michelle Obama said, get moving, you know, get get out there and get get moving. All right. And then the next one, I've got two more. The next one is to drink at least half a gallon of water a day, preferably a little more. And most people, if you look at the undercurrent of numerous problems and diseases, a lot of it is we just don't hydrate. Why? Well, because water doesn't taste good. So invest in a good water purification system, get water that tastes good and drink it like crazy and hide your body is primarily water. And so hydrate it. Let, let your chemical reactions take place that they need a swamp to move around in. They can't move around in the desert. So give them a swamp so they can move around. And then the final one is make a list of all the people you hate and forgive them. Very nice. Very nice. And I, I can see that that would be very useful from an emotional standpoint. And I guess what you're saying is that that's actually, actually helps your anti-fragility, I guess, in some sort of spiritual sense. Absolutely. You know, when you're all in knots and you have vengeance, vengeance in your heart and you want to do somebody in, it stimulates all sorts of internal hormones and different things in you. I mean, the the relationship between our brain and our gut is now well documented. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer that you have to let it go. And I think that this last election, the acrimony surrounding it, and I would suggest the acrimony 
I mean, I got on a I got on a flight the other day. You know, I get on the plane and I I'll admit it, I'm an anti-masker. I don't think masks do anything. There's no science to it. But anyway, get on a plane wearing my mask, and I don't have it. I wear glasses, and I can't. It fogs up my glasses, so I you know I have it up over my nose, but not clear up into my glasses. And you know, lady's sitting there. I'm walking on the plane, and she looks at me. She you know glares at me, and she does this you know, pull up your mask, pull up your mask. You know, and I'm thinking, really? I mean. We've just really become a, you know, a judgmental, there's some, there's times to pull the trigger, but you don't have to have a hair trigger all the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's probably a sign of fragility to a large degree. And yeah, it's, and you could kind of see society. I think, I think that's what you're saying. Like you could see society being fragile by how sensitive they are to almost everything. And that's, that seems to certainly be the case right now. So I wanted to get your take on Bitcoin. What's your take on Bitcoin so far? I know you thought a lot from a libertarian perspective, uh, at least from what I hear. So what's your perspective? (laughs) Well, my perspective is that anything that drives power down into the populace is a good thing. Mm. And anything that drives power up into the, whatever, the elite is a bad thing. And I'll admit, I have many friends that are Bitcoin aficionados. I'm a Luddite. As you know, we had a hard time even getting me to, to, to get on this podcast to, to, to get through the links and all. And so, you know, I don't have any. I haven't bought any. I haven't invested any myself personally because I don't understand it. But today, you know, the problem with all innovation is. A, I think two things. One is coaching. The other is turnkeying. And so most of us need a most of us need a coach, a mentor to understand innovation. And so you know when you're trying to sell an idea or market an idea, you need to understand that most people don't just glum on or jump on to something that's new. It takes a little bit of mentoring, some some coaching. And then the second part, you know, beyond coaching is that it has to be turnkey in as much as it has to be easy to get into. It has to be easy to enter. And this is one reason why Zoom, you know, Zoom, virtual Zoom took off. I think they were the first ones that were, at least for me, I can tell you, for me, they were the first ones who made it easy. I didn't have to you know, do any cutting and pasting and doing everything, you know, just hit the link and boom, you're in. And so for any innovation, Bitcoin included, the sooner that it can be made, that entry level, that participation can be made simple and easy, that will absolutely drive participation. Well, we're going to have to get you set up at some point. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe I need to visit your farm and you can show me how to handle my chickens better and I can help you like buy some Bitcoin or something. like. That. This has been amazing. And I, I'm so appreciative of the work that you're doing. And for me personally, you're an inspiration to, you know, living out my faith in a way that's consistent with what I happen to be good at or the skill sets that I've obtained and so on. And for me, that's, I appreciate that very much. So just to close this out, where can people find you and how, how can people get in contact? Well, sure. We have a website, Polyface Farms, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, 
polyfacefarms.com. And the website's pretty comprehensive. It has everything from my speaking schedule to things we're doing on the farm to how to get food if you want food, how to get my books or anything like that. And then I do a daily blog, musings from the lunatic farmer. This little two-minute short, very, very short little blog every day. And so, yeah, we're very available, and I'm glad to, uh, to talk to anybody. All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Joel can be found at, at Joel Salatin on Twitter and on polyspacefarms.com. Until next time, fiat delenda est.